In our last episode of Craving Answers, Craving God, we spent some time addressing what the Bible calls the fear of God. Whether or not we fear God, we all experience different kinds of fear. Living presents a broad spectrum of fear from that unsettled feeling to outright terror. Let's talk today about fear in general and why it's so prevalent. And could it be true that the general fears that we experience are a symptom of idolatry? Let's continue our discussion on the subject of fear on today's edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, first question. Do you think Adam and Eve experienced fear before their fall from grace? Before their fall, before sin was their fear? And it's a good question. I think that, so when we talk about fear, actually in your intro, you kind of mentioned that there's a spectrum, you know, there's an unsettled feeling or an anxiety or a quick burst of, of fear. And then there's deep terror. There's more, maybe it's helpful to think of uh, momentary fears, non-repetitive fears, and then more chronic fear on the other side of the spectrum. Before the fall, I, so there's things that we experience that we call fear. Like you see a mouse run across the floor and you, or you, you know, you walk past a snake in the yard and your heart beats and your you know, body gets a ton of energy. And uh, we call that fear. I guess that's appropriate. That's, um, you're not really afraid that the mouse is going to do something bad to you. It's just your body's way of ramping up. A, this, is what you, this is what I always felt before a big basketball game. You, know, you get this, and it's not really, you're not afraid that anything bad's going to happen. You just get this energy, and you get kind of pumped up. We call that fear and nervousness a little bit. I'm guessing they felt that. I think that's part of God's gift to us. To, sometimes you need a shot of adrenaline. You've heard of people. Uh, lifting a car to rescue a person, and there's no possible way that they could have done that without that shot of juice, that shot of adrenaline that came from that momentary burst of whatever, you know, that maybe they called it fear. Now, there's a chronic fear, though, uh, which is probably what we're going to end up talking about most of the time today, this um, deep-seated uh, this deep-seated fear, this sense that something is lost, or that there's a potential to lose something. I don't think they felt that before the fall. I think they lived in perfect harmony with themselves and their own desires and their own goals and in perfect harmony with their environment and uh, outward-faced, loving each other and loving God. I think that deep chronic fear came into place uh, once, um, let me use the word, the fall. Once that fall happened and all that was good was at worst lost, and at best what was retained was marred, that that deep sense that there's the potential of radical loss around the corner, which is the basis of fear, I think that, was, that came in after the fall. In your ministry as a pastor, when you are counseling people, maybe individuals or couples or maybe even groups, does it happen often that they've come to you because there is something they're afraid of going on in their life, they're experiencing fear? Yeah. Um, sometimes it's a fear of, lo- a fear of lo- losing another person. Uh, the mar- marriage counseling typically with me starts with when one of the members says, 
I don't know what's going on, but my wife or my husband is acting strange, and they're sitting a little bit loose to me compared to what they always have, and uh, distant and cold, perhaps. There's that fear that I'm going to lose that. A lot of times, it's a fear of death. This is a huge one, right? This, uh, um, I, I don't want to die, and sometimes people will come and talk to me when they're sick. Uh, sometimes people will be perfectly healthy, just I can't get past the fear of death. Had lots of conversations in the past couple of years with students from our local Christian high school about the fear of apocalyptic disaster, the fear of um, uh, a global warming catastrophe, the fear of um, uh, some sort of like health disaster like we've experienced uh, here in 2020 and 2021. And so, um, yeah, people come, fear is a large motivator to come and talk to a pastor or talk to a counselor or talk to a therapist to get help. The Bible says something like fear is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We talked about the fear of God last time. Now we're talking about just fears that people experience on a regular basis as individuals. Are those fears ever healthy? Or are they, are those, is that kind of fear unhealthy? Again, um, so I'm assuming we're going to talk about chronic fear here. Not that, you know, the, the, the uh, fear of, uh, um, you know, the fear of the snake when you're walking through the yard. That's just a good way to not step on a snake and get bitten. But um, assuming that we're talking about chronic fear, that your question's about chronic fear, I'd say, yeah, that is, that is not healthy. Now, um, can it be healthy as a symptom to a larger, deeper issue? Yeah, it can be healthy in the sense that um, rapid weight loss is a sign that you there's something wrong with you. You need to go to the doctor. You got you find out you can't you got cancer and you can get help. But it's not healthy in and of itself. You you brought up the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. I think that last time, Chuck, you brought up the the text where Jesus says something along the lines of, um, "Don't fear." man, but fear the one who can destroy body and soul and hell. So when we talk about the fear of God, which I know we did last time, what we're really saying is that the only, the only thing that you should fear losing is God. The only thing that really has the power to, and thankfully it's the same one who has the power to, to love and redeem us, but the only one who has the power to ultimately destroy us is God himself. Nothing else does. And so any fear of those things well, don't run from it. You shouldn't run from it. You should look at it and say, okay, what is this telling me about the state of my soul and what I'm hoping and dreaming in? What am I putting my focuses in? Don't run from it. But it's not good. And we should be turning back to the one God who is the only one who has the right to be feared. And and when we do that, we'll find that these other fears are alleviated. I think I found some examples of just general fear, like we're talking about now in the Bible. The gospel writer Mark says that Herod feared John the Baptist. Mark also says that those who sought to arrest Jesus did not arrest him because they feared the people. John speaks of those who feared Pharisees or who, quote-unquote, feared the Jews. Are these examples of the kind of fears that the rest of us experience in our day-to-day living? Yeah, um, it's interesting. The examples you read are all political leaders worried about, you know, having fear of other, either other political parties. They didn't, wouldn't have called them political parties in first century uh, Judea, but other political leadership groups or subcultures that they depended upon for their authority. You know, um, 
um, religious leaders fearing the people, so afraid to make a move to arrest a popular prophet. We all experience this. This is a, this is a, a fear of loss, right? Um, Herod is afraid of John the Baptist. Uh, the Pharisees are afraid of the people. Uh, Pontius Pilate is afraid of the religious leaders because in some sense they depend upon these people and the favor that these people have or can give them for their own political position. And this is basically what fear is. It's the fear of loss. And yeah, we all experience this all the time. There's a place in the scripture where Jesus is, seems to be addressing the anxieties of everyday life, the fears that people experience. And this is my interpretation now, so I, I'm willing to be corrected. He seems to be reassuring his listeners, and he says, Fear not, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows, after telling how the, the God of the universe uh, yeah. takes care of the birds. So should the Christian be fearless? Yes, I no, no, we're not. Christians aren't. Um, but we should be in this sense. This is what uh, is a really great text that you quoted here from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. So Jesus is saying, and there again, so to go back to what I just said earlier, uh, fear is, is at its heart, it's, fear is the, the belief and the potential that you're going to lose something that you value. That's what fear is. And so in Matthew 6, Jesus is saying, uh, don't take thought for your food or your clothing, um, which we all do. We're all afraid. You know, we, uh, you know, all of us at one point or another experience the fear that my finances are not going to be there to get me food or to get me clothing or, you know, to expand on it, to get my kids through school or to, to make the next car payment or whatever it is. And Jesus is saying, don't be afraid because... I'm going to take care of you. That's fear for the Christian. The alleviation of fear for the Christian is replacing this gnawing sense of potential loss with a belief in a sovereign and loving God who's determined to take care of those whom he cares for. Uh, and so Jesus is saying, don't be afraid that you're going to lose these things because I'm in charge of the universe. I own all the clothing in the universe. I own all the food in the universe. I take care of little birds. How much more would I take care of you, whom I love and whom I've created in my own image? Don't be afraid. Now, that's of course, that's easy to say that. And anytime I read that or hear you quote it, like you just did, I think that's good stuff. But when it comes down to, you know, when it comes down to actually, you know, uh, something going wrong with the car and I don't know if I'm going to have the money to fix it, then I experience that fear. But Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls me back again and again to don't be afraid of those things. Instead, trust me, I can take care of you. So as we prepared for this program today, one of the things that you suggested uh, might be fitting in our conversation was the link between fear and idolatry. Right. Can you uh, flesh that out for me? Yeah, so this is a good um, the link between fear and idolatry. Your fears are typically now. Again, I, I'm not talking about you know the momentary burst of adrenaline that you get before you have to do a public speaking project or something like that. And I'm also not talking at this point about phobias. Uh, you know, the irrational fear of heights or of uh, lizards or whatever. I'm talking about this chronic fear. This 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 chronic fear can be 
a symptom of an underlying idolatry. And what I mean by that is, and I'm kind of repeating a little bit of what I said a few minutes ago, the thing that you fear losing is something, you know, we fear losing the thing that we've made the most important in our life. If, if I've made money the most important thing in my life, the thing that's going to keep me up at night is the fear of losing it. If I'm at a place in my life where, you know, Christian or non-Christian, if I'm at a place in my life where I don't really care about money, I'm never going to be afraid to lose it. So let's reverse engineer that. Find your fear, the thing that you're afraid of most, and if you trace that to its root cause, it's going to be some sort of idol, Uh, a fear that I'm going to be alone, a fear that my wife is going to leave me, a fear of what life will be like in the house when the kids move out, a fear that I'm going to go into the lunchroom and nobody's going to sit with me. Uh, Behind all these things is the idol of, I need companionship. I need friends. And like all idols, I mean, we're not talking about idols today, so I'm just going to make this quick, quick explanatory note. Like all idols, having friends, having a wife, having kids living at home, it's all beautiful, good things. But when we make them the center of our existence, when we make them the thing that we get our meaning and purpose from, in other words, to use biblical language, when we make that our object of worship, The notion that that could be lost, that my friends could be lost, or my kids or my wife, it exposes that idol, that fear really exposes that idol. I think it's Luke who describes Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he is awaiting what he knows will soon be his arrest, and he is in an excruciating state in terms of how he feels as a human being, and we know and believe that Jesus was 100% human and 100% God. But his experience is so severe that Luke tells us, I think it's Luke, that his sweat became like great drops of blood. And there's some kind of medical term to describe this. But it sure looks like Jesus is afraid there. It looks like he is experiencing fear at its utmost. So is that a contradiction? Shouldn't it be that even in this situation, Jesus has no fear, or is what he is experiencing something else? That's a really interesting question. I have never, ever thought about that until you said it. I, that's the kind of thing you need to like prep me beforehand too, Chuck. Don't just drop that <laughs> on me like that. So I, This is a lot more fun. Yeah. So the, here's just a shot in the dark. It doesn't actually, the text never actually describes exactly what Jesus is feeling there. It tells us that he doesn't want to, uh, he says, take this cup from me. And we know that cup, the cup is Old Testament. It's a Hebrew Bible idiom for the wrath of God. Maybe this is the case. I'm just spitballing here, and I could be wrong, so nobody out here hold me to this if it turns out that uh, I'm completely mistaken. But if we think about fear in terms of idolatry, I experience intense fear at the thought of losing my money. That's a, that's a symptom to me that I'm worshiping money. I should never experience, as, as, um, as a human made in God's image who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ— I should never experience the fear that I'm going to lose God. I don't have to because I always have God. I don't have to have that fear. That's a sign that he's God, that he's permanent, that he's real, that he's always there for me. The fear of losing money is a confession to my own psyche that it might not be here tomorrow. I don't ever have to have that fear about God. 
But unlike me, unlike every other human being in the world, Jesus is about to go into experience, an experience where he loses, even briefly, his father. And if that looks like fear, I mean, Jesus has to know it's not permanent, but he knows that he's about to experience something that no other human being is going to experience, the loss of a connection with God. Uh, the, the, no other Christian is going to experience the loss of a connection with God. And if in that moment he experiences fear, it's not because it's a fear which is a symptom of idolatry. It's a fear which is a legit symptom of losing the real God, even if just for a moment. And it doesn't describe it as fear, so I'm a little reluctant to say that what he's experiencing is fear. But that makes sense to me, that that losing the only thing worthy of worship in the universe, the only thing that's ever given his life purpose and meaning, the love and heart and will of his father, he's going to lose that. It's going to smell like the same thing it smells like to me when I think I'm going to lose my kids or I'm going to lose my money. I don't know if this is correct or not, but I've always interpreted that for myself as an expression of his true humanity. Human beings, especially faced with what you just described, the, the complete separation from the Father, which had never happened prior to that and never ha has happened again just for that one moment. As a human being, it makes sense to me that that would be a very, very yeah. difficult moment. Yeah, for sure. And if, 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 what, if what I was saying a minute ago has any sort of basis in reality, it's a good lesson to us, you know, a couple of things. It's a good lesson to us that A, the, the very human emotions that Jesus experiences are, are legitimate. We're not meant to be automatons. We're not meant to be Stoics. Uh, emotion is God designed us for this. And if God himself in human form can experience human emotions, it's legitimate for us as well. Also, it's a good lesson that all of life, Jesus is fearless. He's never, ever described with, never, ever described in the Christian Gospels with the word fear. Never. And if this is the one moment when he experiences fear or something like fear, it's a good lesson to us that the only thing we should ever be afraid of, the only thing that should ever bring us to our knees to say, like, God, don't ever let this one thing happen, would be the loss of God himself, which he's about to experience. Now, thankfully... I mean, the, 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 um, uh, the secondary point to that, of course, is that we don't have to experience that fear. We never have to experience the fear that he experienced because he experienced it for us. The fear of actually losing the one true God, the one, only one worthy of worship, was only experienced by him so that we would always know that the one true God, the one true being worthy of worship, is always with us. Matthew tells the story of the disciples... They're in the boat with Jesus, and a great storm comes up. They awaken a sleeping Jesus with the words, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Jesus responds with, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? I know why they're afraid. They think they're going to die. Right, yeah. And Jesus asks them why they are, are afraid. Yeah. So is there a rhetorical question in there, or certainly Jesus is not puzzled by their behavior. He understands that, what's going on there. Yeah. So yeah, it's hard to talk about this. I could I could totally talk about this in a sanctimonious way. I could preach them, you know, hey, don't be afraid. But I probably should just let Jesus do that. 
you and I in the same position would also uh, be incredibly afraid. If I was on a plane that I knew was about to crash or I thought was about to crash, I'd be incredibly afraid. It seems callous to say that that too is a symptom of an idol, the idol of my own sucking in oxygen, the idol of my own heart beating, the idol of my own continued existence here on this plane. And what Jesus wants them to see, though, is that uh, you know, can't hold on to that. Um, there's a couple of things he wants them to see. One is that uh, you should have no fear because the God of the universe is in the boat with you. You can't possibly be lost as long as I'm with you. So on a real, very, very real level, that's if they, if they believe who he says he is, the Messiah who's about to redeem Israel, then he's not going to get drowned on the Sea of Galilee before he actually accomplishes what he was sent to do. On another level, though, because they are all going to eventually die, it's, it's, you know, this is not, hey, don't be afraid, you're not going to die. It's the, 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 ultimately, the message is death, let me say it this way, life is something, our current life here is something less to be held on to. It's something less to be afraid of losing than being with Jesus. That's what he wants them to see. So a spouse announces that he or she is leaving the marriage, or the doctor says that the diagnosis is terminal, or you come to work and the boss says he wants to see you in his office right away. Fear is inevitable. There isn't anybody who's going to live this life and not experience fear. But can the person of faith deal differently with fear? Yeah, for sure. And I've seen it happen a ton of times. I mean, not always, and never perfectly, never perfectly, but I've seen the person of faith grapple with situations which would cripple uh, the average ordinary person, uh, but put into, put into circumstances where they can begin to see the power of God's grace in heartbreaking uh, events. Really do. And so there's a couple ways that we could do. So we have been talking about idolatry, and that's one way to see it is um, fearing and fearing and loving and trusting God above all things, even above money or above spouse or above health or above you know comfort. Another way to say it, another way to get it, and it's, it's the exact same thing, but just a different angle, is to say you know do the First John uh, thing, where First John says in um, uh, John says in First John four, perfect love cast out fear. There's no fear in love because perfect love cast out fear. So you know fear is inward focused. Fear is fear is focused on what could be lost. Love is focused on what can be given. Fear, love focuses on, love never focuses on evil, 1 Corinthians 13 says. Fear can hardly focus on anything else besides evil that might happen to me. By focusing on love, I'll give you, I, I, there, there's a couple I know I'm extremely close to who uh, the wife was afraid uh, for several years that she was going to lose her husband. Uh, this, this, this fear could be paralyzing. What conquered it for her was, A, stopping worshiping her husband in her marriage or that I'm not single. B, being liberated by worshiping God to love this person who didn't love them in return. It was revolutionary to her life, and it was revolutionary to the marriage. Love can transform us from people of fear 
from people who are focused on ourselves, from people who are trapped inside of our own anticipations of the next evil event happening. It can pull us by the grace of God and by the power of Jesus. It can pull us outside of ourselves to love those around us. I mean, you see stories like this, you know, so, um, you know, people are, People don't walk through fire. It's just a, it's it's, a, it's incomprehensible to to a, to walk into a fire to be burned up. But many a mother has done that, has walked through a fire to save a baby. That fear has been conquered by love. Many people have saved a marriage by loving a spouse through a fearful situation. And this is love is the key to this. The love that Jesus gives us, the love knowing the love that God has for us in Christ can liberate us to say, I don't need to hold on to these things. I don't need to be afraid I'm going to lose these things because I always have God's love, which fills me up. And I, in turn, can face outward. I can face through these fearful events to love the other. We may have referenced this in our last program. We have the example of Peter, who, as Jesus is going through his trial, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion and burial, Peter turns into an abject coward. Right. And he has three opportunities to say, yeah, Jesus is my Lord and I'm willing to die with him, like he had said privately before that. Yeah. But he doesn't, depending on who is saying, you were, you were with, with Jesus. Yeah. No, I wasn't. But then after Pentecost, which probably has something to do with this, mm-hmm. Peter turns into quite the brave man. Yeah. And he is arrested for proclaiming Jesus in the streets. He is beaten and told not to do it again. And he receives the beating and then counts it all joy that he was worthy to be, you know, to experience that on behalf of, not on behalf of, but in faith in Jesus. Right, yeah. And then he goes back out and starts proclaiming it again. So where did this courage come from? Right. What happened to the fear that made him look so puny in those crucifixion moments, and now so courageous after Pentecost. Yeah, courage is a great word. I so you know, talking talk about fear, we probably should talk more positively in terms of courage. Love and courage are directly linked. The courage that it takes to um, to be a hard worker, the courage that it takes to sometimes just to get out of bed in the morning, the courage that it takes to love people. All that courage always springs out of love. I'm convinced that two things happened to Peter, which are kind of simultaneous, you know, they, they, they're related to each other, is what I'm trying to say. And it's what we've been talking about. First of all, he had an idol, and his idol was political revolution over Rome. And in his mind, Jesus was a tool to accomplish that idolatrous goal of his. And when that idolatrous goal went away, because all of our idols always do, he was afraid. He feared the loss of that. He feared that little girl who he thought could turn him in as a potential revolutionary. The second thing is, is that, and it's related to this, is he didn't. He he loved his own goals. He did not love Jesus. He did not love his fellow disciples. He had his own vision for what this was going to accomplish for him. Uh, hey Jesus, can I sit at your right hand when you come into your kingdom? Like I want political power, Jesus. And when that was taken away. When he realized the depths to which his God loved him enough to become a human being, to die for him, to be arrested and killed for him so that he could escape in the Garden of Eden, when he came to grips with that reality, his 
ability to love was unleashed. And it was only when that idolatry was, was, was conquered, it was only when his ability to love outside of himself was unleashed that that fear was conquered. And he could, he could go to his death, as, as tradition says he does, did, could go to his death serving this Jesus, having purpose and meaning in his life, having escaped the slavery of fear. Romans 8 talks about the bondage of fear that comes from uh, slavery to our own self. He, he could escape that because he'd been liberated by the worship of the one true God in Jesus Christ. Let's use as our last example, an Old Testament example. I'm thinking of David. You're talking about courage. David, in a way that makes just no sense at all, decides to take on the Philistine giant right. Goliath. He's offered armor. He's offered weapons. He turns, the, t- turns them down and goes to his shepherd's weapon, a sling and a stone, and he is very bold, almost even arrogant yeah. in his confrontation with Goliath. But he takes down the giant, cuts off his head. Now, do we think that if we take our fears to God, I'm thinking of the woman you were talking about before who was afraid that she was going to lose her marriage. Right. If we take our fears to God, whatever that situation is, can we count on David-like courage in that moment that comes as a gift from God, or was the David example or the Paul post-Pentecost example, that's just, those are just rare things. It's like the parting of the Red Sea. Those, you know, that happened, it happened to David, it happened to Paul. It's right. not going to happen for me. Yeah. Um, I, we can count on David-like courage. We can't count on David-like results. So David had one thing going for him that the, that, the, that the rest of us don't have, and that is that the previous chapter, he had been anointed Messiah. And like Jesus in the boat, he knew, until I become the king of Israel, I'm bulletproof. You know, Sam, he believed that God's promise through the oil that Samuel had poured on him, that you are going to be the king of Israel, the next king. So he knew that he was, that I'm going go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go do the king's job. The current king's not doing it. I'm going to go out there. And since Samuel has anointed me to be king, I'm going to win this thing. I just feel like if I had been in his sandals, I still wouldn't have had that kind of feeling. It, that courage, it seems to me, had to come entirely from outside of him. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the, the, the promise of him being Messiah. The oil on his head came entirely from outside of himself. So he had this, he believed in God, right? I mean, I guess there might have been a moment where he said, wait a minute, what if Samuel was mistaken? What if it was one of my older brothers? What if I'm going to go out here and get myself trashed by this giant? Uh, but he didn't. He believed in the promise of God. He did not hold his own life to be something worthy to be worshipped. He, he held the God of Israel as the only one worthy of worship. It was his belief in—it was his, his belief, not in any false idols, but in the true worshipful one, God, and his love for that God that drove him out there. This is why he has the guts to stand in front of the Philistine and say, you come to me with a sword and spear but I come to you in the name of the Lord. Like you came out here mocking the God of Israel. I'm representing him. Guaranteed you're coming out on the worst end of this one. That level of courage is always there. It's always possible. And not the result, but Peter's in the boat. He's scared he's going to drown. Jesus says, trust me, don't have any fear. Why are you afraid? Peter's going to get crucified upside down someday. And if in that moment he says, okay, Jesus, where you're at, Jesus is going to say, trust me. Don't be afraid. It doesn't mean he's not going to die. 
but he will have the courage to face even the moment of his death because he's worshiping the one true God, no idols, that eliminates fear, and his heart has been released to love God and to love other people, that eliminates fear too. That's our conversation on fear, fear in the general sense today. And we want to say thank you for listening to Craving Answers, Craving God with Pastor Aaron Miller, pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. We encourage you to share your questions and comments, and we're very serious about this. We'd like to hear from you. Just go to our website, stjamesglencarbon.org. Click Contact Us. Leave your message there. I'm Chuck Rathard. Thanks for listening.